morning, everybody. Good to see you on uh, what John has now dubbed Casual Sunday, I suppose. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> I hope you all had a Merry Christmas, got to spend some time with family and friends, and most of all got to uh, celebrate the birth of Jesus. I was, uh, I'm very thankful to have married into a family that does uh, fondue every Christmas season. So we were just crushing it with the shrimp and chicken and steak, and Danny was crushing it with the mashed potatoes. And uh, yeah, I hope that you all were able to have a, a great time as well. Let me invite you to open up to the book of Joshua this morning. It's going to be uh, on page 301 in your pew Bible. We're going to be looking at the first chapter of Joshua. We're kind of in between sermon series here where we're finishing up that sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus, where we've been looking at the, the women in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be starting a sermon series in Philippians. So I'll let John share more about that in the, uh, the week to come here. But I'm excited about that. But I, I want us to, this week, as we're considering the new year, coming up on that, just be thinking uh, about what God wants to do in us as we head into that year. But uh, like I said, Joshua 1, let's pray together, and then we will consider what his word has for us. Lord, with the psalmist that we just read, we do indeed praise you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for all that you have done. We praise you that we even get the, the, the privilege and opportunity to come here this morning and, and look upon your word and, and, and study it and, and see what you have for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we, we look at this text that you would convict our hearts as necessary. We pray that you would lead us in the way that you desire us to go. Help us to see what you desire us to see. We pray that you would work in us to form in us uh, the hearts that you desire. Make us into the image of Christ, Lord. Help us to be your ambassadors. Do that through your word as your spirit moves this morning. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. All right, well, as we've been talking about here, we are transitioning now from Christmas to the new year, and that is kind of an interesting time for many of us. It's a, it's a time of, uh, I would say, a number of, of thoughts, uh, a number of uh, emotions. All of us are kind of reflecting on one hand uh, back at the year that we've had. For some of us, we're reflecting on like the past like two or three years that we've had, and we've been thinking about, okay, what has happened what, what have I accomplished? What has been going on in my life? What, what has gone really well? What have I achieved? Where have I grown? Where are some of the places maybe that I've failed? Where, where are the places where I've fallen short of God's glory, where I've let other people down? So we're looking back at the year that we've been in, and now we're looking forward to 2022 and saying, okay, how would I like to grow in this year? What does God want to do in me? Just like John was praying. What, what does he want to work in me by his spirit? How would I like to avoid last year's failures? But either way, as we go from Christmas to New Year, it's a time that it is full of reminiscing over the past year. We're thinking about memories. Some of you might have nostalgia. Some of you might have heartache. You're missing certain people in your families. But we all have hope when we go into the New Year. For some reason, when we go from December 31st to January 1st, it's just the span of one day, but we think that everything's going to change for some reason. I don't quite understand it, but it is a thing in our culture, and I, I feel it too. But no one is coming into 2022 saying, man, I hope this is the worst year I've ever had. 
this is just awful. And if you are that person, then you're like the ultimate like glass half empty person and I'm not sure what, what to say to you. But, but everyone is hoping for their best year. So maybe you're coming into this year and you're hoping to grow in your vocation or in your job. You might wanna uh, get a certain promotion or you might wanna improve at a, a skill or a trade. Maybe you have a hobby that you'd like to get better at. Maybe it's some relational hopes that you have. You'd like to uh, patch up some conflict with people or you'd like to meet some new people or maybe you would just like to develop some real lasting meaningful relationships for the year. Maybe it's a, a habit that you wanna grow, a, a spiritual habit. Maybe you wanna read scripture more. Maybe you wanna be a more prayerful person. Or maybe you know, it, it, it's something that's not inherently spiritual. Maybe uh, you'd like to work out more. I know for me, that's one of my goals. Like when you have a baby, working out goes out the window for a little bit, right? So there, there's a sense in, we all have hopes. We all have a, a sense of anticipation and, and the opportunity that comes along with a new year. And as we look at the book of Joshua here, we have to recognize that Israel is actually in a similar situation. They have a, a sense of hope, a sense of anticipation about what God is about to do in and through them. Let's backtrack a little bit before we get to this text in Joshua and consider what we've seen. So we've seen that, that God had called Israel to himself. They were enslaved in Egypt. And by his miraculous work through his leader, Moses, he freed them. Right? And he called them into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And they end up at this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God gives them his law as this amazing act of grace and love. Where he calls them into relationship with him. He calls them his treasured, uh, his treasured possession, his inheritance. And what happens is Israel, instead of taking the grace that God had given them and living into his expectations for them, they rebelled. And as a result, God said, okay, if you do not want to enter into the land that I have given you, then fine, I will give you over to that. And so what ends up happening is that whole generation that was leaving Egypt, with the exception of a couple, was cursed to live in the desert for 40 years. And they wandered the wilderness aimlessly in a, in a, in a, a, a trek that should have only taken them about two weeks. They're there 40 years wandering in circles, rebelling against God. Moses is frustrated, and eventually he too falls prey to sin and rebels as well. So he is not allowed to enter into the promised land. But eventually that 40 years ends. And before Moses' death, he calls the whole next generation before him in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says to them, guys, don't be like us. Don't be like me and my generation. Obey God. Choose life. Do not choose death. Don't rebel against God. He's giving you something great. Choose to follow him. And then Moses, after his speech, he goes up on the mountain, he overlooks the promised land, and he dies. And the next thing we know, there's this power vacuum of, of leadership. Who is going to step up and take the place of Moses, this great leader in Israel's history? And we come to find that it's this man, Joshua. And Joshua is Moses' protege. He had been with Moses through, through a number of instances where, where Moses was kind of this kingly leader who was overseeing and organizing the people. Joshua is this military leader who would help to lead out on military expeditions. And now, as they're entering into the promised land, entering into this battle, Joshua is the man who is going to step up. And in chapter one specifically, we see that Joshua is installed as the new leader and God is encouraging him as Israel's new leader and he needs it because this is not gonna be an easy road ahead. They're not just gonna go into Canaan and the Canaanites are just gonna give the land 
over to them. Some of them see what God is doing, and so they, they kind of give up before they get there. But for much of the time, they are going to battle. God is going to holy war against the gods of Canaan, and Israel is the means of judgment by which God is going to judge the Canaanites. And Joshua, as the leader of these people going into war, needs to know that God and the people is on his side. And so we're going to look at that text this morning. I'm going to read this for us. So chapter one, we're going to read the whole chapter and we're going to break it down into some parts. So take a look at the text with me. Joshua chapter one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am going about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest." as he has done for you. And until they have too taken possession of the land, the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded, we will do. And whatever you... and." Uh, uh, excuse me, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them may be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So this is Israel embarking out on their mission to take the promised land. And as I think about this, and I think about the new year, we too have our own mission we're on, don't we? Jesus has commanded us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And just like God tells Moses here, Jesus tells us, I will never leave you. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And this mission that Christ has called us to is not always easy, is it? I know I, I look at it at times and I'm kind of discouraged. I'm kind of overwhelmed, to be honest. It's like this feels far too big to actually come to fruition. This mission seems too difficult to actually be successful. And if you feel that way, if you feel like this mission is too big for any one of us, I think that's true. 
And I think that's exactly where the Lord wants us to be this year. And so I want to ask us the question as we think about mission in the coming year, I want to ask us this. How do we step into God's mission for us in this coming year? How do we step into God's mission for us this coming year? Pull the slide up. There we go. Perfect. And, and as I say that, I, I'm not necessarily going to give you, you know, five steps to better evangelism, to make disciples, you know, bang, bang, bang. This is how it needs to get done. That's not what I'm going after. What, what our goal is, is how do we have to posture our hearts towards God if we are going to be ambassadors of his kingdom in this coming year? First way is this. We do it with reliance on God's faithfulness and his presence. We do it with reliance upon God's faithfulness and his presence. This is verses five and six, where God tells Joshua, no one will be able to stand against you as I was with Moses, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And then he goes ahead to tell them later on that he'll be with him wherever he goes in verse nine. What you might see as, as I read through that is there's four times that this phrase, be strong and courageous, is repeated. It's kind of the, the, the rendition that keeps coming up time and time again to encourage Joshua and by extension to encourage the people. And I'm not so interested in explaining what that means. I think we get what being strong and courageous means, but God gives reasons why Joshua is to be strong and courageous. And one of those reasons is because he is faithful and he goes with him. His presence is there. And as we think about mission in this coming year, I just want us to recognize that God's faithfulness and his presence is foundational for our mission of making disciples. We cannot get around it. We cannot avoid it. We cannot forget it. It is foundational that God is faithful to us. In fact, if we're gonna kind of put it a little more bluntly, God's faithfulness is the assurance that we're not wasting our time. God being with us is the assurance that we are not wasting our time on mission. Because let's be real, if the mission of making disciples was up to all of us, we would be in trouble. We would have some real issues to deal with. Because I know myself, and I'm sure that you know yourselves, and as you examine your life and what it looks like for you to be faithful back to Yahweh and back to Jesus, there's times where you might do that really well where you really step into what God has for you. But if you're like me, then there are certainly moments where not only do you not contribute to the mission of God, sometimes you get in the way. Sometimes you actually would seemingly make it harder. And thank God that he is good enough, he is powerful and sovereign enough to even work despite us. But there is the real true reality here where if the mission were up to us, we would be in trouble. But what this text makes super clear is that the mission of God is not up to us. It is grounded in God and who he is. Look really carefully with me at the second part of verse six. Uh, uh, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous because you'll lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. This is something that God is giving to them. The land that is giving, being given to the Israelites is not something that they're going in and taking for themselves. It is grounded in the fact that God had made a promise and he is true to his word and he will follow through on his promises. If you track the word give through the book of Joshua, it comes up about 80 times and about 70 of those times, it comes up where God is telling Israel, I'm giving it to you. It's not something you're taking. It is a gift that you are receiving. 
And so what do we see? We see that it's this real reality where the mission isn't grounded in us. It is grounded in God. So what is Joshua doing? Joshua is simply serving as God's representative, leading God's people in the next step of God's mission. Let me say that again. We see that Joshua is God's representative leading God's people in the next step of God's mission. This is about God. It is not about Joshua. And as we think about our mission of making disciples, we see that it is our privilege to participate in that mission, but it is not our responsibility to fulfill it. Do we get that? We get to be a part of it, but God brings it to completion. Some of you know that uh, before I was, I was full-time here at Elmwood, my, my other job was uh, coaching a, a, a group of kids. And one of the things that I, I learned in coaching that I wasn't always great at doing, but, but I, I learned the lesson the hard way, was that setting realistic goals while you're coaching somebody, I think this even extends to parenting, is really important. Setting realistic goals is enormously important. Maybe it's a higher goal than that child might have for themselves, but you need to look at them and say, I think you can actually achieve that, so I'm going to encourage you toward that. Because if we don't set realistic goals, it's actually really discouraging for children. If they don't see the possibility of success, they are not motivated to try and succeed. The same holds true for us. Nobody's encouraged to go into something that they think they're going to fail at. No one wants to try if there is no hope for success. The belief that success is a possibility is essential. And, and I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I look at our world, I, I look at our culture, sometimes I even look at the, the state of the church or the way that certain people that profess to be Christians act, and it's so easy for me to get discouraged on this mission. Because I fall prey to thinking that, that, that it is up to us, that, that there's a sense in which we are the ones responsible for, for bringing God's kingdom into its full fruition here. And I'm like, God, how's this ever going to happen? How is there even the possibility of success? And it makes me not even want to try. Sometimes it makes me want to give up, if I'm honest. But what we see is that with God, success is not just a possibility, but it is a sure thing because it is grounded in who he is. So we have to recognize that. The mission of God is not grounded in who we are and what we do, but it is grounded in who he is. And if we believe he is faithful, if we believe he is true, then that should actually take a weight off of our shoulders. It should actually motivate us to participate in God's mission. So how do we step into mission? First way, with reliance on God's faithfulness and presence. Second thing, how do we step into this? With a commitment to complete obedience, with a commitment to complete obedience. Look at verses seven and eight. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses uh, gave you. Do not turn from to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So we go on mission with a complete obedience to God himself. This is enormously important. But here's the thing. If we really believe that God is faithful, if we really believe that he is the one that is bringing the mission to complete obedience, then it's, I think it's easy sometimes for us. Or it, at least, it begs the question of saying, okay, if God is going to do the work, then why do I have to participate? Why don't I just step back? Why don't I just put my feet up? God brings the kingdom into fruition. I've placed my faith in Jesus. I'm good to go. We'll, you know, we'll let God work out the rest of it. 
But friends, that is so contrary to the way that the scripture talks about our participation in God's plan. What we see over and over is that God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, God's goodness does not remove our responsibility from playing a part in his work. To put it maybe more bluntly, we can say that God completing the mission does not let us off the hook. In fact, it should do the opposite. We see this in the Psalms. When the psalmists recognize how amazing God is, they are motivated to serve him all the more. And it's the same thing for us. When we see what God has done for us, when we see Christ on that cross, when we remember his resurrection, that should motivate us because of his love, because of his grace, to live into a life of faithfulness in response to the faithfulness that Christ has already shown us. Let me encourage you to to look really quick at verse seven. Observe with me this. It says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Now, like I said here, there's a sense in which this be strong and courageous is kind of the, the thread that kind of pulls this passage along. But uniquely here, it is emphatic. It says, be strong and very courageous. In Hebrew, there's the word only before it. It's only be strong and very courageous. So here's, here's what God says to, to Moses, or excuse me, to Joshua. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm with you. Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm going before you into the promised land. Then the Israelites say, Joshua, be strong and courageous. We're with you. But for some reason right here, in verse seven, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Obey me, Joshua. Obey my law. Do not forget it. God is extremely emphatic with him that obedience is part of this plan that following him and obeying his law is necessary in the mission that God is calling them to. So we see that there's a sense where when we go from Moses to Joshua, when there's the change of scenario, when there's the change of leadership, when there's the change of circumstances, God's expectations do not change. They're consistent. And that hits me pretty hard as I think about that. Because there's moments in my life where my obedience to Jesus wavers depending on the place I'm in, depending on the people I'm around, depending on the situation that I'm in. For some reason, I think it's easier for me as I think about the new year to to really think, okay, I am gonna pick myself up by my bootstraps and I am going to follow the Lord with more zeal than I ever have before. But for some reason, months later, it's a lot easier for me to stop reading my Bible. It's a lot easier for me to uh, look over or try and justify or excuse certain acts of foolishness or, or sin in my life. It's a lot easier for me when I'm up here preaching to, to be bold on behalf of the gospel. It's not as easy for me to be as bold and encouraged when I'm sitting in my house thinking about the state of our cultural moment and how polarized people are. There's a sense here where where we are at and the scenario we're in sometimes dictates the level of obedience that we have to the Lord. But that's not what we see in this text. What we see is that the Lord is telling Joshua that there's a change of leadership. You guys are going into the promised land. Things are about to change drastically for you, Israel. And I want to emphasize to you that you are still called to the same amount of consistency and obedience. You are still called to the same amount 
Now, the text affirms really clearly that our role in the mission of God is our obedience. But here's the question. Why should we be obedient? I think that's a real question. Like, no one is motivated to obey God in this coming year by me telling you, you just need to obey better. Right? No one is motivated by opening their Bible and and reading the law and thinking, okay, I'm just going to read this and I'm going to make myself do it. And when I don't feel like doing it, I'm just going to make myself do it more. That's not motivating. That's not encouraging. So why should we follow Christ in 2022 with a deeper sense of obedience? Well, the first one I've already said, because we are responding to the faithfulness that God has already shown us. But there's a couple more reasons. One of them we see in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 8. He says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. There is a real sense, guys, in which our obedience is is a way in which God knits in the fullness of life that he has for us. Now, I'm not advocating for salvation by works. We are saved by Christ's work and Christ alone. I'm not advocating for a prosperity gospel where we do things and God gives us good things, but we also don't believe, as I've heard it put, a poverty gospel either. We believe there is real tangible blessing in following God. And so why do we obey? Because there is blessing in actually doing it. It is the best thing for our lives. And secondly, we obey because our obedience is actually the vehicle that God uses to press his mission along. We have this amazing privilege of being the means by which God gets to the ends. And there's nothing cooler than looking back at your life, looking back at certain moments and saying, man, I I knew God was calling me to that. I was terrified to do anything about it, but I stepped out in faith and I, I followed him and I watched him work in the heart of somebody or I watched him work this circumstance for my good and the good of the people in my community. There is nothing cooler than looking back and seeing that your obedience to God has a real tangible impact on him ushering in his kingdom in our world. So as we go into mission, I wanna encourage you towards a deeper level of obedience. Finally, how do we step into mission this coming year with reliance on God's faithfulness, with commitment to complete obedience, and in partnership with God's people. This one is enormously important. I could go on about this one for longer than I should, okay? We do this in partnership with God's people. I'm not gonna read all of verses 10 through 18, but that's the the place where you would focus in the text if you wanted to see some of this. But as we read verses 10 through 18, what we see, and if you're not looking carefully, and if you don't know the history, it might not be as apparent, but there's actually a moment of tension in Joshua's leadership. There's a moment of tension in the story where you're like, oh my goodness, what, what's gonna happen? Because here's what goes on. In Numbers 32, Moses uh, had ended up talking to a couple tribes, actually technically two and a half tribes out of the 12 of Israel. They came to Moses and they said, Moses, we're going into the promised land, but there's all this land here like east of the Jordan that it, we kind of want. Like this is the good land. This is like really good pasture land. Can we have that as our inheritance from God instead of the land in Canaan? And Moses is kind of annoyed with them, but he goes to God nonetheless. And the Lord says, okay, they can have it, but they still have to obey an oath that when their brothers and sisters go into the promised land, they still must fight for them. 
So they can have the land, but they still have to fight for them. So as we're reading Joshua here, what we're seeing is that Moses is dead and Joshua is trying to call these tribes to obedience. He's saying, you made this promise, now fulfill it. And the tension exists because these tribes here, they have no incentive to obey Joshua, right? He's not Moses, He's not this leader that had walked with them for years and years in the wilderness, and they already have their land. So they could say, forget you, Joshua, and go back to their land, and that would be the end of it. So there's this moment of like, okay, are they going to step up? Are they going to fall under Joshua's leadership and fall in line with him? And what do we see? We see yes. Yes, they do. And they actually do more. They get a little extreme. They say, actually, Joshua, if anyone disobeys you, we're just going to kill them. That's what they said to Moses, too. They were they were a little extreme, but nonetheless, they, they say, okay, we're, we are with you 100%, and then they do something that's amazing. They, they echo God's words back to Joshua. They say, Joshua, be strong and courageous. We're with you. We're for you. We are going in as a group together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 I think speaks really well to the value of what we see happening in this text. Some of you might be familiar with this. It says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands cannot be quickly broken. What we see here is there is a cord of 12 strands, or you might say 12 tribes, that is now unified as they enter into the promised land under Joshua and ultimately under Yahweh's leadership. But the point is this, that Joshua could not have lived into God's call on his life alone. Joshua is a military leader. That is what he is made for. He's been following uh, Moses around, learning about what it means to be in relationship with God, but ultimately he is the military leader here. He is leading them in this charge. If he has no army, he has no purpose. He needs Israel if he is going to play his part in God's mission. And the same holds true for us. If we are going to live into God's purposes for our life, we need one another. It's that simple. We need one another. If we're going to be really blunt, the the reality is we can't even obey Scripture if we do not have one another. Right? Scripture is full of, of communal commands, right? Bear one another's burdens, love one another. You cannot love another if you're just by yourself. Right? This is a whole group thing. This is a team effort. We need one another for, for spiritual encouragement so we can hold each other accountable to following Jesus well. We need each other for emotional encouragement. I know as we've gone through the holiday season, some, somehow through the holiday season, that's usually when, when people end up struggling the most. That's when I, I feel like we get the most calls to the church for people that are in need. That's where I, I know people in our church family have, have struggled through a number of things. This is, this is when it comes out, and, and you see now more than ever that we need somebody to be helping us in bearing our burdens, in walking with us through our sin struggles, in supporting us when we cannot support ourselves. We need one another, and we need someone standing next to us to physically, tangibly see that we are not alone in this mission. We are in this together. It is such a a, a blessing to be able to gather together on Sundays and, and even throughout the week when people are here, but specifically when we're just standing there singing worship And the way that our our sanctuary is set up, you can look to the right or to the left and physically see another person there worshiping Jesus with you. There's something beautiful about that. There's something that's an amazing reminder in the midst of that, that we are not doing this by ourselves. 
And I just want to affirm for us that, that we do this in partnership with one another as the Spirit works through us. But as we finish up and as, as we think about where we see Jesus in this text, I just want to step back with you. And I want to ask you to look with me at verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. Because we have to ask the question, they're going into the promised land. They're going to take Canaan. God is calling them to, to give them this land that he promised to them and to their ancestors. But why is God giving them this land? What is the purpose? Is this land inherently different than other land? Maybe. It seems like it might be more fruitful. You know, they call it the land flowing with milk and honey. But, but what is the eternal value that is behind the land that God is giving them? Look with me at verses 13 through 15. Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. We see this word rest come up. The Hebrew word is nuach. It's from the, uh, it, it, it's the word that Noah comes from. Noah and his flood, that's the word Noah comes from, right? It, it, it's this idea of rest. And when many of us think about rest, I think, you know, it's easy for us to think about rest being the absence of work, right? It's easy for us to think of rest as a time when we're being revitalized or rejuvenated, where we're relaxing, where we are getting our bearings again, we are, where we're recuperating, and all of those things hold true in Scripture. But, but the Scriptures, when they talk about rest, they, they fill this in a little bit more. They give it some more connotations and nuances. When the Scriptures talk about rest, it is far more holistic. It includes things like having peace with your neighbors. It includes things like being provided for in the place where you're at. It includes things where, if you know the word shalom, a level of wholeness, it's, it's very similar. To, be, to find rest is to have a level of wholeness and well-being in your life. And what we see here is that the mission of God is about us entering into his rest. But it is not simply about entering into a land. It is about being where God is. That's what Israel is going to experience. They're going to go into the land and they're going to build the temple. Right? They're going in this land so that God will dwell with them. It is all about where God is. It's this amazing gift that God had given them. But what we find is that despite his intentions here, we find that Israel is extremely uncooperative. When you're reading Joshua 1, this is like a highlight in Israel's story. If you know the rest of Israel's story, it's, it's far bumpier than this. They are enormously uncooperative with the Lord. And, and despite the fact that they have a, a good leader here, they are unified as a nation, they're going in to take this land that God had given them, that is not true through the rest of the story. We find that the leaders that come after Joshua are really complicated. If you just go to the book of Judges right after Joshua, you will find out super quick about how complex Israel's situation is. We find that they are not unified later in the story. In fact, they enter into civil war with one another. And eventually, because of their sin, they, uh, God gives them over to the nations and they are actually exiled. They're taken out of their land. And then when they come back, God's presence is not there in the same way. 
They might be in the land, but they do not actually have God's rest. And so the question is, how is Israel going to enter into God's rest? And what the scriptures make really clear is that this is not just an Israel problem. This is a humanity problem. This is all of our problem. We, like Israel, are extremely uncooperative, oftentimes, with the Lord. We have sinned against him, and he, he, because of our sin, he will not dwell with us. We have severed relationship with him. So the question is not only how Israel enter into God's rest, but how will anybody enter into God's rest at all? And as we come to the New Testament, we find the answer to that question. We find that entering into God's rest is not about us cooperating with the mission. It is not about anything that we do in and of ourselves. We are insufficient to restore our relationship with our maker. But we find that it is grounded in the very thing that we started with here, with a reliance upon God's faithfulness. We see that God is so faithful to us. We see that he has gone to great lengths to save us that he has taken on flesh in Christ, that he lives the life that we should have lived, that we should still live each and every day, but we still, from time to time, fail to do. And he takes that perfect life and he goes to the cross. And as he's dying on that cross, the scriptures are really clear. He is not dying because of his sin. He is dying and taking into himself the consequences for all of the sin that we have committed. And as he's resurrected, we see this amazing demonstration of God's love, where we see that Jesus' work was enough, that his perfect life laid down for us was enough to restore our relationship with God. So this is the call of the gospel that we need to remind ourselves of, that we are called to turn from our sin, that we are called to turn to Christ. And this is what we are promised. We are promised restored relationship with our maker, We are promised that every sin that we confess to God is forgiven. We are promised eternal life and we are promised one day we will be resurrected to new life in a restored creation where there's no more sin, where there is no more brokenness, a place where God is, a place of eternal rest. And it is grounded in Jesus and what he has done. Ultimately, Christ is God's rest for us. He's not the way that we get to rest. He's not the way that we become righteous. He is not the way that we become forgiven. He is our rest. He is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness. And he is the centerpiece and the the grounds upon which we go and accomplish God's mission. We participate with him. Jesus says, it is finished. So we can have the utmost assurance. When someone comes back from the dead, after saying it is finished, and tells you, okay, the mission has been completed. I'm resurrected from the dead. Now go and make disciples. I I tend to believe them, right? I think that we should as well. We should be motivated by this. We have confidence for the mission because of Jesus alone, right? We see most clearly in him God's faithfulness. And so we're motivated by the faithfulness that God has shown us. We see in him that God's law and expectations and standards have been met in our place, And so we obey, not because we have to, but because the Lord has already done it for us. And we see that this dividing wall between us and our maker has been destroyed. We have been restored to our heavenly father and we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit for all of us who have trusted in Jesus. And so we become, as the apostle Paul says, ministers of reconciliation. We are able to go out, tell people about Jesus, 
offer forgiveness and love others because we have been forgiven and loved. So we think about this new year, I'm sure many of you have been thinking about what you would like to go different or how you would like to grow or maybe some resolutions that you have. I'm personally not a huge resolution person, but I think it is helpful to think through, okay, what are my hopes? What are my goals for this year? So I'm just gonna give you a few questions to think through as you consider, okay, what does it look like for me to prepare my heart in God's presence to go into the mission field and to boldly share the gospel with people, to go and play my part as I participate in the mission that God has said he will bring to completion? First question, how have you seen God's faithfulness this past year? As we think about grounding ourselves in God's faithfulness, obviously we do this most notably in Christ, but Apart from Christ's work, like how else are we gonna ground ourselves in God's faithfulness if, if we don't remember any ways that he has been faithful to us? I'm sure there's many times that we can look back. I'm sure there's many moments in our life where we can look back and say, God, I saw you step in right there. I saw you be faithful to me even when I wasn't faithful to you. I saw you do something amazing. And so I wanna encourage you over the next few days to think about what are some of those moments that no matter what I'm going through this coming year, I can look back at those and say, Lord, I know you're faithful because I saw you do it there. Second, what spiritual habits will help foster a love for the Lord this year? This can be as simple as, okay, I just want to pray the Lord's Prayer once a day. Or it can be as complex as I'm gonna go on a silent retreat for a week and really seek out what the Lord has for me and read his word. You can be as simple or as complex as you can. But ultimately, we do not do these to to appear righteous, to feel righteous, to feel like we have checked something off on our list. We do this because it's these spiritual habits that help fan into flame affections for Jesus. And, and, and you, I'm sure, like, like I recognize that when we are on fire for the Lord, when we are feeling awesome about our relationship with him, it makes going out and making disciples and being bold all that much more of a joy. Finally, last question. Who are your main three to five ministry partners this year? Who are your main three to five ministry partners this year? I already said it, that we cannot do this alone. And the reality is that surface level relationships with other believers are insufficient to help sustain us as we're on our Christian walk. We need deep relationships with people who are pursuing the heart of God, who are indwelt with his spirit, who are pouring into us and we are pouring into them. So when you think of ministry partners, we're not thinking of maybe missionaries you support or, or this or that. that, that is all awesome stuff. I'm talking about who are your main people this year that you can, I've heard it put, you can call them at 3 a.m. with anything going on and they are there for you and they will preach the gospel to you when you most need it. Because here's the thing, the mission is not getting any easier. As we look at the world around us, as we look at, at the state of our lives and the lives around us, the mission is not getting any easier. Our world is becoming more polarized. If anything, it feels to me, and I, I'm, I'm sure you would probably agree with this, that, that it, it feels even more challenging than it did maybe even 20, 30, 40 years ago to talk about Jesus with people. So we need one another. We need to partner with those in our life who are indwelt with God's spirit. We need to partner with God's spirit in our own life as we pursue spiritual practices. But ultimately, we need to rest in God's faithfulness knowing that he will bring to completion what he has started, not just in our world, but in every single one of us. And then we respond with love for Jesus because of what he's done. 
Let's take a minute to reflect on, on what we've seen in the text and in, in what God may be doing in us. Maybe you, I'll leave these questions up. Maybe you want to reflect on a few of these questions and, and write them down. And then we will close in prayer and then continue to worship together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, there are ways that you've called us to go out on mission boldly on your behalf and we have shied away from that. There's ways that we've made excuses or that we've deemed ourselves to be inadequate. There's ways that, that, that we have justified ourselves. Lord, forgive us. Lord, you've given us this amazing task and, and, and you've taken the responsibility upon yourself to bring it to completion and yet sometimes we shy away. Lord, would you stir in us hearts that are on fire for you? Would you give us a supernatural boldness this year that we might go out and proclaim the good news of Christ? Would you help us to rely on you as we've never relied before? Would you help us to partner with, with our church community and, and build those relationships and, and dive into those as, as we've never dove in before? Lord, would you help us to develop consistency in our, our spiritual habits that we might be excited about you on a, a more consistent basis? Would you help us to hear your voice? You tell us that we will, he, we, we were, we will hear and know your voice, our shepherd Jesus. Lord, help us to hear and know your voice and obey that voice, knowing that that is the very best thing for us and for our community. So Lord, in your mercy, forgive the ways that we have fallen short. Forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.